Sometimes change can feel scary, but it can also be exhilarating. A time to stretch our boundaries, embrace opportunity, and start something new. Welcome to the Baby Brunch Parenting Series, made just for you by BrightRock, the provider of the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. This is a Baby Brunch Podcast. Gabby Lowe studied a BA before embarking on a successful career in media and marketing. I finished your book this morning and I'm not a reader. I don't know how to read books. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why I do podcasts, because I read really slowly, really, really slowly. I'm actually taking my jacket off because I have so much to talk about. So much. And how was it? I put eggs on at about 6.30 this morning mm-hmm. and then I finished one of the middle chapters, because I read it out of sequence. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I read one of the middle chapters of um, when the lung transplant was just done. Okay. You went straight there. Gosh. I burnt my eggs because I forgot about it. And I thought someone was in the house, but what I was hearing was the tick-tick of the hot plates on the shell of the eggs. And when I went downstairs, I realized that I'd burnt boiled eggs. Okay. A first, I hope. (laughs) Maybe. In studio, I have a woman that I have so many questions to ask to get me to 21. This is the book, The Jenna Lowe Story. Gabby Lowe is in studio. When I was approached by someone, I don't even know who, I think it was the publisher. Is it Jakana? Is it? Yeah. I, I didn't see your name first. I must tell, I saw your name on this book only on Friday. Oh. But what I saw first was Jenna, and what I saw first was the brutal story brilliantly written, uh, carried by wisdom and love. Mm. And I finished the rest of the book in, in my studio where I was playing music this morning. Uh, I work in radio, and I am upset. I'm angry. I'm wondering how can you, through loss, inspire others so much through this book? And there's so many themes that are listed from this that I I refuse to write questions today because I want to talk to an ordinary mom who has done so much for her daughters and who's done so much with her career, who's rebuilt her business so many times before and who's rebuilt it again after loss. And I I want to ask these questions out of sequence because I'm feeling all of this. Okay, let's do it. You don't mention all the doctors' names in the book. No. Why not? I didn't think it was necessary. I've mentioned the name of Jenna's main doctor mm-hmm. and the doctors leading up to the hospital, the diagnosis. I didn't think it was necessary to name them all. So um, this book's not a witch hunt. And I think it's important to know that. Um, it's not about that at all. And never, ever did I want to damage transplant in South Africa. And there are things that went wrong, and it is very painful. But the intent was always to save Jenna's life. And that's important to remember. Do you look back and want to blame someone? I don't want to blame someone, because no one person is responsible. No one person is responsible. But there are things that need to be changed. So the fact that we have such a low organ donation rate in South Africa is deeply upsetting to me because there are 5,000 people a day waiting for a life-saving organ. And yet we have this very low organ donation rate. The fact that the government isn't behind transplant. Why is there no centralized transplant list? Why are they not fighting for us to have an opt-out system? You know, in many parts of the world, you have an opt-out system. You are born an organ donor. And you only aren't one if you decide at the age of 18 to opt out. That's what we should be going for. Why don't we have hundreds of transplant coordinators around the country? And then also in terms of the system, the hospital system, you know, I just think that our doctors are under enormous pressure. There's no support. Our nurses are working ridiculous hours and therefore they make mistakes. The handover systems are, they're big gaps in our medical care. If there's anything to blame, it's that. But the only way I've been able to heal is to remember that the intention, everybody's intention, including the people who made mistakes, 
was to save Jeddah's life. Let's go back to, and I mean, normally on this podcast in the series and when we have conversation with our moms and dads, we, we speak to ordinary moms always say who do extraordinary things. And today I met you in the foyer and you look like Jenna. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> and I say that because I've met her. Oh, you're joking. When did you meet her? Okay, I've got goosebumps. The day that they told me that Jenna had passed on, I said impossible. Because her, the campaign that she had created, Get Me to 21, was so strongly recognized that I believed that she will live. We all did. We all did. And when I heard that she had passed on, I was in disbelief the same way. And that is how I deal with grieving. I don't believe it. Even with my close family and friends, I, I just go, impossible. <laughs> mm. They're not dead, you know? Yeah. Um, in Afrikaans, we say the court women. It's, it's something that I still need to learn to deal with. And that is what is so significant about your book. You, you write it as someone who, who is celebrating through grief. Can I say that? Like you, you are able to recognize your daughter in every possible way. Yeah, so I don't know about celebrating through grief, but maybe um, fighting to find joy in grief, fighting to... Um, to keep on doing what she did, which was to really live in the face of heinous adversity and suffering. If she could do that, if she could have the strength to really live and to be present in each moment right up until her last second, I need to do that too. In October, Jenna came to SABC3, the show that I was co-hosting with a few other members, and she came to talk about her campaign, Get Me to 21. And I remember them preparing us that morning because it was a breakfast show that someone is going to come and visit today and this is her story and we all had to read up about her. And when I went back last night to the Facebook post, I couldn't find the video. But the Facebook posts made me really emotional because I realized that that denial I had about her passing on hasn't happened yet because the people are commenting on the Facebook post saying, happy 21st birthday, girl. Wish you all the best from God. Another one says, my little niece, 21st on the 1st of November. Please come. Samora Michelle. The other one says, hey, the site is working. Because mm. someone has obviously said, you know, it's not working. Jenna rocks. Mm. Hello, Jenna, you're an art. You're beautiful in every inspiration to all young women. You made me change because I thought I would never go away, give away my body parts. It's written in because, like B-C-U-Z. <laughs> because God will punish me, this person says. But they went and they did it. Wow. Let's get to the book quickly. Get me to 21. Wow. So, I read the first chapter and I thought... Who is this woman? <laughs> she ate a dacha cookie the day before. <laughs> where is she? And I'm, I'm frantically going through it. And I'm like, where was she? Where, what, what happened? So I realized that you, the parent that's looking after the, people, the, the children at, at matric range. Yeah. And that your younger daughter is... What, what happened that morning? You woke up and then... What are you asking? Are you asking about the Dacha cookie, which you need no, to know is completely out of character and not something I normally do. And one of the decisions I made, and I'm glad you brought this up because one of the decisions I made was I was going to be honest the whole way through this book. Mm. Really honest, brutally honest. Mm. And so I had to admit that literally the night before I got that call, that's what I did. I ate a half a wheat brownie and it's something I never do. And mm. When you then read the book, you will understand why. That um, for years, the stress that we had been under, the fight, was just something else. Absolutely something else. And here I was. I was only away from Jen once mm -hmm. in years. And I went because to be the sibling of a sick child is a hectic thing. Mm -hmm. And Christy, my younger daughter, 
it was her turn to go to matric wage. It wasn't her matric wage, but it was her boyfriend's matric wage. And student and I spent so long making that decision. Mm. Would I leave Jane for a few days so that Christy could go? Because she was too young for me to let her go on her own. And together we decided. She had given up so, so much. much. So much for so many years. She had been in the shadows. She had been not able to have an ordinary light. She'd witnessed and seen hideous things that I would go that we would set it up at home so that Jane was safe, that Nurse Lizzie would be there to help Stuart mix the medication, that I would go to plate with Christy. And can you believe that that is when the call came mm -hmm. to say we've got lungs? That, when I was not there, is the day. I mean, it's just bizarre. Before we talk about where Jane was in that stage, as a mom, and, and you just said it, of of two girls and the one is healthy and the one is not healthy. Mm. They weren't born sick. No. What happened? So Jane was a completely normal child. She wasn't born sick. Um, but at around the age of 16, she started showing signs of breathlessness. And um, until then, she was a dancer. She was a swimmer. Um, she was also top academic. Mm. But... Um, she started sign showing signs of breathlessness. That was the first sign. Um, and that was when a very long journey began to try and find a diagnosis as she got worse and worse and worse. One of the reasons that we really campaigned so hard to raise awareness for pulmonary arterial hypertension was exactly that. Because if she had been diagnosed earlier, her chances at a longer life would have been better. In the book, you explain the journey that you've gone through, and I don't wish it for any mother. And I see how you literally, you document all your thoughts. Some of it scrambled, some of it rushed, some of it slowly. How you try and um, draw out the, 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 the process, everything that you had to go through. Do you think if you did anything differently, you would have diagnosed it earlier and I say that because I see the pressure that she was under going to school and taking part in this long walk that everyone had to do or not being labeled as oh you know you're the one that's seeking for attention because something is actually really wrong or the fact that everyone is sitting around the dining room table and you can actually hear her breathing heavier but she's not complaining mm. do you think that 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 you as a mom is there anything you could have done differently um, you know, I did absolutely <laughs> everything that yeah. I could do other than move, well, I did move heaven and earth. Do I have regrets, which isn't possibly what's behind your question? Of course I have regrets. I wish that we had had done that nuclear perfusion scan the first time I took her to that physician. But here's the thing, I've had to learn to forgive myself for that because I, I'm not a physician. And I didn't know. Mm. I didn't know. So initially, I did what the doctors told me to do. Eventually, I started doing my own research mm. and pushing and pushing and pushing. But also, it's helped me to realize that around the world, even where there are top medical centers of care that deal just with pulmonary hypertension patients, diagnosis is hard. And people are often diagnosed late. And it does masquerade as asthma. So... I know that I did absolutely everything I can and still I would change it if I could. Mm -hmm. I would change everything if I could. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the hardest lessons. It's one of the hardest lessons is that it is what it is. I can't change it. So your response to death of it can't be true is a completely understandable response. It can't be true. That's how I felt when Jane was first eventually finally diagnosed. It can't be true. My beautiful, very bright, very socially conscious child cannot be faced with a terminal disease. But part of what I've had to learn is to accept what is. How do they eventually know that you're a candidate for... For transplant like how do you how do they give you that news when, when does it reach the stage where they go your lungs are not going to help your body we need to give you new ones so by the time she was emergency listed she was pretty far gone so when she was first diagnosed she was already category three of pulmonary hypertension you only get mm -hmm. four categories and then there was that fight which you will have read about um 
constant battle to get into South Africa the medication that she needed and lobbying with Medical Control Council, lobbying with Parliament, raising funds to pay for the medication, getting the meds in from all over the world, mixing medication myself, making a hospital room at home, becoming a doctor, becoming a nurse, you know, well, not becoming a doctor, but really a momcologist is what we call it. Mm. <laughs> so that was a massive, massive challenge. I'm looking at you and I'm thinking that you are extraordinary. Do you know that? Oh, gosh, we all are. Elana. But I'm just thinking, if you if you were not the mom that went all the way, you know, you had to put your own uh, dreams, <laughs> routine. I see how you do school drop and how you go back because, you know, life goes on on the outside, but at home, you've got your daughter who needs you, you know. Mm. And I do think, I mean, when I read the first chapter of the book, I do I thought this woman is strong. She's going to be fine, you know. She's going to do this. She's she look at her career, you know, and then. You have to remember that you're the mom that have to look after your your baby. Mm. Yes, absolutely. It was it was so difficult to be a mom and someone who had to become a case manager in a way. And I think that's the problem with a rare disease, is that not only are you faced with this diagnosis, you know, mm. also faced with the additional challenge that comes with a rare disease, which is that the expertise is not easily available, that the drugs are not easily available, that things cost a living fortune. And how yeah. do you care for a child 24 hours a day and not earn money because you're caring for a child when there's all these expenses? All of that additional stuff that comes with a rare disease, which is hectic. Um, that is the big challenge. That is the big challenge. Did the medical aid pay for everything? No. How, um, did, you, how did you find money? How did you... I fundraised. So I stopped working and I fundraised. So I, I, I put together all sorts of fundraisers, which um, a group of friends helped me with. And I had to fundraise to raise the funds for the medication. So medical aids do not have to cover medications that aren't registered in South Africa. So one of the fights has been to get these medications registered in South Africa for other patients with pulmonary hypertension. Did your marriage suffer? No. We are incredibly tight. Um, and in actual fact, I think because I have such an extraordinary husband and um, he actually resigned from a massive job. He was MD of Ramsey Media um, to start a business at home so that he could be closer to me, closer to Jen and help be mm -hmm. part of it. And he is an extraordinary human. There are very few men who will talk about these things and who will come at something like that with an open heart and who will really be able to hold that level of maturity and pain. So I'm very blessed to have him as a husband. You list a lot of thank yous in your journey and you mention people by name who's literally helped you get to the hospital, provided the meals, the uh, Christmases in Plet, which mm -hmm. sounds really magical. And I remember at the one stage I thought, oh, are they, are they going to get to their holiday destination this year? And, and Jen was in hospital. Mm -hmm. You know, you... You had a different routine. You had a different Christmas. Your magic was, was somewhere else. Yes. There are a lot of themes of, I, I keep looking at this and I'm thinking, are you okay? I don't know how, but I am. It's, it's, I, I am okay. I didn't think I ever would be. But I've done so much work, really, conscious work to be functional. And I think that... Meditation, yoga, therapy, EMDR, trauma release exercise, walking in the forest, talking, my life coaching that I then went and studied. I mm -hmm. did an 18-month diploma. And now my practice. And I've really found that helping other people, and I know it sounds wow. so cliched, but helping other people Is helping has taken you. me out of my own journey and my own pain. And it's very important that we... We don't let our stories define who we are. They are part of who we are, but they can't define who you are. I didn't want to get stuck in that. Mm. Um, so it is a massive part of who I am, and it has, it, it has formed me. But it isn't me. Do you know what I mean? I do. I, I'm more than that. I'm more than just my story. And other people's... My work has given me so much purpose. Other people's problems take me out of my own. And keep me in touch with a broader perspective of 
there's so much that goes on out there. There's not one of your listeners who doesn't have some kind of suffering or mm-hmm. adversity in their life. And so we need to we need to keep perspective. We need to keep perspective. Does that change how heinously painful this is? No. But it does give me a way to cope. You go through the book and, and I, I read it and I see that dear Jen, she's not just a a an author. I mean I loved I loved how you told the story of how she wrote the book as a child and you knew that your that your daughter had superpowers, you know? Mm. I'm a mother of two daughters and I, I think their art is amazing. It's going to be exhibited one day. <laughs> um but I see how you talk about her story and how at a young age already she do you want to tell that story? Because yeah. our listeners are listening and I'm excited about your daughter as if she's here. Yeah, I know. Well, she had that magic. She did. And as if you are, you're living her dream, you are doing what she would have wanted to do. Yes. Um, Tell me the story about her and and the book she made. So she was this delightful little fairy-like person when she was little. She had a tiny little voice. And she was petite too. So tiny. Tiny little voice, but with this massive vocabulary. I mean, you've had children. She had just about a full vocabulary at the age of 18 months. It was astounding. Then she discovered books and reading. Um, Before she was in grade one, she was reading and she just would not leave those books. She was quite shy, but with this gentleness, but with a power. I don't know. She had this, um, this magic. And then at about the age of eight, she used to really love her granny. And Christy and her went to visit granny. And they were playing author, author. It was like a little, instead of doctor, doctor, they were <laughs> author, playing author, author. And Christy was taking calls and saying, no, the author's very busy at the moment. <laughs> he can't come to the phone. And Jen just started writing, handwriting this mm-hmm. little story in her very scrawly handwriting. And she came home that day and she said, oh, mom, I started a story. And I said, oh, that's lovely, my darling. Let me have a look. And I read the first two pages and literally the hair stood on up on the back of my neck. I was like, good Lord, this is... This is amazing. Mm-hmm. I said to her, Jen, this is, this is really, really good. I mean, do you want to carry on this story? And she was like, I'd love to, but it's, it's so tiring, you know, handwriting. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I can type. And we just had this amazing connection. She would come into my office every afternoon after school. And she would sit there in her little head. She'd little cock her head like this. And she'd look up into the left corner and she'd go and just start talking. And I would type. And if I changed one word, she would, yeah. Right. Lose it. My book. My book. (laughs) (laughs) And it turned into a book. She wrote a book, a little magical children's story called The Magic Bussy Tree. And what's bizarre is only much year later when she was ill did I realize in some weird prophetic way she had written her own story. She wrote a story about a little girl. And when she describes the girl as she's describing herself, who steps on a magic thorn and becomes very ill, meets a witch doctor, and then goes through all these adventures to try and find a magic cure. I mean, is that not just bizarre? You released this book at the time and the funds helped people. Do you think you would release it again? It's not a bad idea, actually. It's not a bad idea. I should do that. I should do that. With a different forward, maybe telling her story. Mm. You had a a very cool job. I read your CV and how you were involved in magazines and how you started a PR company. And that's what single moms, moms to be, if you just had a baby and you're not sure where to find yourself in your career, that's what we dream about, you know, that everything will fall into place and that you'd find purpose and that you'd have an office and make money. And when Jen was born, what were you doing for a living? When Jen was born, I was at Woolworths, at Woolworths head office. Um, and you mentioned this in the book. Yeah. And I was, um, I was in the marketing department or PR department. And, you know, I was quite career orientated. I thought I was just going to squat in the passage, have my baby and go back to my, back to my desk. We all know? do that. Wow. <laughs> and then she came out and, oh, my heavens, like everything, you know, this just mm. changed in that heartbeat. And um, I had maternity leave and I just thought how am I going to do this I can't go back to work full time and Mm -hmm. yet I need to earn I love my career how do I do both 
And I'll never forget going and speaking to Carol Grohlman. She was the marketing director at the time. And she right. was a tough lady. Yeah. She was a properly tough lady. And Listen, I wouldn't mess with you either. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> and she said to me, well, you know, what? Do you want to work? You don't want to work. I said, I do. Mm. I want to work half day. And I'll never forget this. And this isn't in the book. She looked at me and she said, don't you ever tell anyone this. <laughs> but I wish I had done what you're asking me for. Wow. So I'll give you a slot with the board. And if you can convince them, then fine. So I did all my research and I discovered that all over the world, specifically in Holland and in Europe, women were job sharing. They were doing half days. They mm. were. So I put this whole presentation together. I had a slot with the board. And then they, um, they trialed it. I was the guinea pig. And now they're these fabulous maternity packages. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. So, yeah, when Jane was born, I just realized there's no way I could go back to work full time. But I did want to work. So then I went in eight till two and I had my afternoons with her. It was perfect. <laughs> absolutely perfect. You eventually left there. I eventually left there because... Um, what very seldom gets talked about is that when my second child was born, Christy, she had a rare disease mm -hmm. um, called mastocytosis. It was presented as a skin condition, but it was in actual fact um, an immune system condition. She has since grown out of it. But at the time, it was pretty hectic. And again, we're, this theme just suddenly cropped up in my life of rare disease. That was my first encounter with it, um, of needing to find the expertise and that that's what was, that was what was strange to me because I wasn't aware of your other daughter's rare disease until I opened the book and realized that, like you say, that was your first encounter. And Jen at the time was a toddler, but healthy. Totally healthy. Completely well. Completely well. How did you find a solution to Kirsty's skin disease? At some stage, you mentioned the words waltz. Waltz. Welts, oh yes, yes. on the skin, yeah. And I thought, this is terrifying. Look, I'm even scratching my back. like, Because <laughs> your tiny baby is in pain. Yeah, yeah. No, it was pretty hectic. So she was six weeks old and she, I, the, these sort of marks started appearing on her skin and I had no idea what it was and we thought it was an allergy. And off I went to um, the pediatrician and he said, no, he's never seen this before. And he mm -hmm. sent me to a really good dermatologist. Um, yeah, and then... It was a rather crazy, it was a short and intense but very difficult diagnosis time because initially we thought it was something called juvenile xanthogranuloma and then um, histiocytosis, both of which, when I googled, were absolutely horrific. In the end, it turned out to be mastocytosis, which is also not fantastic because it's an immune system condition. It presents as skin. Right. But what happens is that the body produces too many histamine cells, mast, mast cells, right. which produce histamine. And, yeah, we had to really find the right expertise because there were just so few people who had had it. And then I was driving along in my car one day with her, with my baby next to me, and I heard this guy come on the radio, and he was an allergy specialist, mm. which this wasn't. It wasn't allergies, but he was also a pediatrician, and he was also an immunologist. And when I heard him talk, I thought, this is my man. And I phoned his office, and the receptionist says, yeah, 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 I can get you an appointment in three months' time. And I said... Oh, no. <laughs> now. <laughs> you go and you ask him, I'm not getting off the phone, mm -hmm. does he know of anything like mastocytosis? And she came back to me and she said, well, you won't believe it, but he studied under a guy in the United States who's a specialist on mastocytosis, and he says, come in this week. And that's where we first got our help. So it's an amazing thing how you find you need to open. You need to open. And you will find what you need, but you need to be open to it. You need to look for it. You need to ask for it. You need to see the signs and respond. And that became a theme, doesn't it? The whole way through the book, actually. Yes, because that's what I was going to say to you. The one thing that I've learned from the book is, you know, up until my daughter was three, she's four now, but this was only last year, I was the parent who wants to be unnoticed because I'm the most noticeable because you're the, you're the mommy from the radio. Mm. So I would want to, and I would not open my mouth, not about anything. And then I was like, wait a minute, this you is my child, hide. okay? You can't hide. This is my kid that mm. we're talking about. And I love how in this book, you talk about, it is about openness. It is about willing to push for your children. Yes. It is about being able to stand up for them. Because that is your strength in this book. 
It is every, like, I loved how you just explained how you found the expert. But in the book, you do say, when I heard it on the radio, I realized that this is my way in. Yes. You know, you were like, bingo. Bingo. You need to be open to it, looking for it. Looking for Because most of us think that you can't contact the guy on the radio because I'm just one of a hundred thousand. Oh, no, no, no. You must look for the solutions because if you, if you don't, then you're playing the victim. Mm. Oh, this has happened to me. No, it hasn't happened to you. It has happened. What are you going to do about it? Right? It hasn't happened to you. No one's up there saying, okay, this is, I'm punishing you. This mm. is your legacy. No, it's not happening to you. You need to reverse the victim mentality and say, this has happened. This is real. Optimistically, what can I do? Constructively, what can I do? What can I do? And remain open to those solutions. There are ways. There are always ways to cope. What is the age difference between your daughters? Two years and ten months, but it might as well have been three months. They were so close, Mm. so close, right from the start. So Jana, being the gentle, beautiful soul that she was, when Christy came into the world with this illness... Um, I mean, she just couldn't stop touching her. She loved her. (laughs) And they developed this incredibly strong bond. And what's amazing, and you will see it in the book, is that Jenna had this gentle soul. And Christy, with this illness, came out this fiery, sparky, (laughs) sunshiny little thing. And because Jen was so shy, Christy would be the one who'd take her hand and say, come, Jenna, Mm. and take her off and introduce her to people at a party, even though she was just about three years younger. Mm. And then it reverses. And Jen just turns into this powerful young woman at about, in grade seven, actually, mm-hmm. around 12 or 13. She really just came into her own. And um, not reverses. I mean, Christy's always been fiery and, and amazing. But, um, yeah, Jen just really grew. Um, it was incredible. And the shyness dissipated, melted away, melted away. How did you manage to build your business with two small children who are two and a half years apart? You are clearly a doer. You are out there, a go-getter. You've got two young children, one who is ill. At the Mm. time, your youngest with some skin disease, which Mm. is not even a skin disease. How did you manage to build your business? What what made you go, I'm a mom, I need to earn. Yes, I've got a husband, but I need to do it for myself. Well, I was full-time at Woolworths at the time. I resigned because I thought Christy needs me. And I'm going to be there and find what she needs and do what she needs. And amazingly enough, um, I was going to take a sabbatical. That lasted three days. Um, <laughs> it was a three-day wow, sabbatical. I'm so surprised. <laughs> <laughs> because it was Woolworths who said, no, 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 Gabs, you are amazing and we want you. But we totally understand that you need to be working from home. So they gave me a project. So I worked from home. Initially, I didn't even have an office. I literally worked from Christy's bedroom. I would drop Christy at Janet's school, come back, and I had Christy in the little piccolo at my feet. And if she needed to be fed, I picked her up and fed her. If she needed to, you know, toddle around the house, I toddled around after her. And when she slept, I worked. Um, and it was perfect because it was part-time. And so I realized, wait, hold on, this is doable. I can still work and be a mom. Mm-hmm. And their needs, I can tell you this, always came First. first. So if I had to work at night, and you know this, we've yep. all done it, After then I would work at night when mm-hmm. they were asleep. And um, I was there to drop at school. I was there to fetch from school. I was there to do moms and tots, to swim, <laughs> to all of that stuff. And yeah. yet I could work as well. And so working from home became an amazing thing. And here's the thing that I thought, which none of us have I written about, actually, so I'm glad you asked me. But I remember so distinctly thinking at the time, I wonder if the girls are suffering in any way. And Jen, in her very eloquent way, when she was about 12, said to me, you know, Mom, it's such an amazing example to have you Mm. to know that we can do whatever we want to do. Mm. And yet you are always there for me, always there for me. And there was so much that they learned from me being a working person. Sometimes they I'm had gonna to I'm going to listen to that part of this podcast for the rest of my life. Oh, There's so much that they the learned kilts. from that. The guilt, the guilt, you know the what? Guilt. That guilt is just a, it's just a ball and chain around your ankle. It's nonsense. Mm. They need to learn that they have choice. They need to learn that they have talents and skills that are usable. They need to learn how to wait. How to wait. I mean, that's a simple skill you need to learn. Mm-hmm. They need to learn that you matter, that you're also part of the family. You're not their slave. You're their mother. Mm. They need to learn. And that's how they learn. 
through example, through example, not by what we say, but what we do. We know that. Your daughters are extraordinary. And the things you write and say about them, I only know who they are because I read your book. Mm. Do you think, and you just said it, they, they, we copy what our moms do, right? Yeah, we do. You are quite, and I said it, you're a go-getter. You are sure of where you are going and your goals. You do matter. It would have been different if you were a different mom. Do you think that they'd still be go-getters if you were different, if you were Oh, wow. I mean, passive? that's a hell of a question. Um, but I don't think so. I think that our children are a combination of both. They're a combination of their genes. Yes, they come with their own stuff into the world, stuff that we have nothing to do with. But they also are a product of their environment and how much they loved and how much they seen and how much they heard and how much they trusted and how much we back them. And that's what I think we sometimes make mistakes with as a mom. We think that if we do everything for them, we're showing them how much we love them. Yes, of course we are. But then we're not backing them. We're not believing that they're capable of their, in their own right of doing things for themselves. And there's so much to be gained by a child learning to do something on their own. So it's about getting that balance right. So I think they are, as I think children are a product of both. I do. And it's just interesting. I can see you're about to ask me something, but I'm sorry. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, but no, I just no, at had all. A thought I, yes. But Christy now, I mean, when Jane passed away, Christy was 18 and it was so, so 17 actually. It was so traumatic what she'd seen, witnessed, been through and that kind level of loss. And part of me just had to believe that if I was just there for her, there for her, there for her, that one day she will be okay. Part of you sometimes just has to back them and believe because I can't change what she's had to deal with. <laughs> I wish that I could, but I can't. And so I have to believe that my love for her and the support that we give her will be enough for her to find a way in the world. And I think we all have to believe that as moms. I could be, and I was for a short time, absolutely crippled by guilt by what Christy's been through, what she's had to go through, and the times that I couldn't be there for her. But it doesn't help her and it doesn't help me to be crippled by guilt. I read the fact that Jen loved writing. And immediately while reading the book, I become paranoid. I'm thinking that I would go through the entire room and start searching for more and more. Did she say something? Did she know? Did she know she would pass on? Did she know that we would all be sitting talking about her because she has left us with things to do? She wrote a manual for us to do homework about, you know? She did. <laughs> you started your it's business true. and you are helping people who are grieving and who needs to set life goals for themselves. And you said mm -hmm. it earlier, through other people's problems, you finding direction. Yes. When did you decide to go through her things and find journals and videos and the things that she recorded? It took me a long time. Um, because I wanted to read it and I wanted to see those things that she had taped on her laptop. But I was in so much pain and so broken um, and so traumatized. I had severe post-traumatic stress mm. disorder after the six months of horror in the hospital. So only when three years later, when I got to the point of saying, OK, I'm going to write this book now, as soon as I know it's going to be, I'm going to do it now. Mm. How long after her passing did you decide you're going to write about it? Three years. Three years. It was three years of, of a lot of work um, on myself and, and on the grief and feeling the grief. And that then it became clear to me that it was time that I wanted to do it. And Stuart really wanted me to do it. Mm. And as you know, because you've read the book, he has cancer. So I also had this... I'll be honest, because you seem to be able to drag that out of me, Alana, <laughs> that I had a sense of time pressure as well, because we don't know what the future holds for Stu. So if he really wanted to see it in print, then I need to get my act together. And, um, and I had a sense that Jen was sitting there on my shoulder saying, OK, like, hello, mm -hmm. we've done the grieving now. When are you going to get started, mum? <laughs> yeah. I really did have that sense. I still do. I can feel her with me all the time. Yeah. Um, so it was three years, and then I knew I had this. I had this 
clear plastic big storage container that I'd put all her writing and her books into. And I had put it at the top of the cupboard. And it's interesting that you ask this because this is an important and it's almost a metaphor. When you put that stuff in the top of the cupboard to hide it away, don't leave it there because it'll haunt you. At some point, you need to take it down and you need to open that box and you need to look inside because yeah. that's where the real healing starts. And I knew that it was going to be so hard to go through that stuff. And I went away on my own and I sat on the floor and I read those and I wept and I wept and I wept and I vomited and I shook and I wept for days. There was also some beauty in it. Her voice was in the room. She was jumping off the pages. She was with me. Seeing and hearing exactly what she went through was excruciating and I have not shared all of that in the book. I've chosen the pieces that I've shared that I believe mm. Implicitly, she would be okay with me sharing. But I'm so glad that I have her writing because it is extraordinary writing. And she was a very honest writer and very eloquent. And it gives all of us who read it a window into her soul, actually. It gives us her voice on the page. It's all well and good for us moms to say, my daughter's extraordinary. We all think our daughters are extraordinary. But they are. And of course they are. But this way, the reader gets to meet her, to really meet her. I also want to say this, if you're listening to this podcast, and this is, this is not, a, it's not a story about a mom who had a daughter. This is not, this is not what it's about. Do you know since... <laughs> I'm just going to share this because as ridiculous as it might sound, I, this is what it did for me over the weekend. So I went to Cape Town because my children are in Cape Town. And we have a house there because I'm a Cape Townian that moved up because I started radio. And I decided to take them out of school for a month because it was time. I needed them to be close to their grandmothers and see me there. And halfway through your book, at page 68, mm-hmm. I decided that instead of going to London over the December holidays, we're going to Plet. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and halfway through the book, my, my husband's amazing. Like, he's like a steward husband. Oh, lucky you. Yeah. They support us and I can do nothing wrong. And even when I'm wrong, he'll pull me one side and say, you were wrong, but you were also right. So oh. now let's build on that. Oh, my heavens. He sounds like my dude. And I said to him, you know what's great about the author, about Gabby? You have personal goals in this book, like seeing your friends and building memories and making time for your children, no matter how successful you are in your careers. And that's, that's inspiring because most of the time, as cliche it might sound, most of the time we think if I can only be successful in my job or my career, I can give my children everything. And I'm so glad that through this, you taught me that, that your job and self-development um, is, and fulfillment. is, yeah, is awesome. But building memories and having the New Year's gathering and seeing people for dinner and seeing the right people for dinner mm. and hanging out with, with your daughters and making time for them is just so important. And I love how you are the drop-off mom, you know, because I'm the drop-off mom because mm. I do school runs mm. and pick them up again. Absolutely. And everyone came to hang at our house. Mm. You know, they all came there. And and what's been so beautiful for me, I'm up here in Joburg now, and it's been tough to come back to Joburg, I must say. I mean, there's so many grief memories here. It's been tough. Um, I said to Tammy earlier, I want this week I wanted to turn the city of grief into the city of gold for me. <laughs> yeah. And it, I've been doing that because mm-hmm. people like you have been so amazing to me. Oh, bless you. I love no, meeting true. you. Um, but what was so special was yesterday, a friend of Jenna's and a friend of Christy, both live in Joburg, phoned me and said, come, we're going. They took me off to four ways. Those relationships with Jenna's friends and with Christy's friends, because of the time we spent together, those kids are still in my life all the time. I don't have two daughters. I have hundreds of sons and daughters because of that time invested. And I'm very blessed. I'm very blessed with that. I clung to your book, Getting Off a Flight, last night. And my heart was broken because I just left the girls behind. And reading, reading Get Me to 21 
didn't console me much because I was crying for you as well. And as I got off the flight and I got onto the bus, a young girl walked up to me and she said, do you know, do you know that that's my friend's friend? Oh, mm-hmm. wow. wow. And her name was Lauren. And she said, that's my friend's friend. When they moved up to Joburg, we were all in the same school. Oh, wow. Did you move up to Joburg? Completely? We had to. So I, 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 sorry to, to steal your word. Because yes. I, I read in the, we, we, you packed the boxes. And did you move because she was in hospital here? Yes. So the, you can't, back then, you couldn't have lung transplants in Cape Town. So it had to happen in Joburg. And they had asked us, um, while she was emergency listed, would we move up here and wait? And we said, no, we won't do that. It's too disruptive for Christy. Mm. And um, also because of pulmonary hypertension, in actual fact, it was quite tough up here for Joburg, uh, for Jen in mm-hmm. Joburg. The altitude made it even harder for her to breathe. To breathe. So we promised them, we said, but that's not going to stop us. So the day that call comes, be it no matter what time of the day or night, we will get to Joburg within four hours. So that's why there was that Operation O2, that piece of paper. With so the, I, I want to quickly speak to that. Did you write a to-do list in case the lungs arrived so that everyone knew what to do? Therefore, even though you were in George or in full yeah. rage, you, your husband knew what to do because he literally... Absolutely. And we had a, a meeting and we had a dry run. Everyone who was going to be involved, we had a dry run. How did, what's, the, what's the route? To the airport, to the, because it wasn't the commercial airport, it was the private airport. We had a dry run. Absolutely. I already packed the bags, the medication, because I knew if that call came, it would be very complicated because she was on so many difficult medications that it was very complex. And she was really sick, so to move her was difficult. It wasn't a quick, oh, hop on the plane. Mm. It was difficult. So, yes, I mean, they were, we had a, this document literally called Operation O2, my two neighbors had a copy, Stuart had a copy, the people in the office had the copy, the nurse had a we all had a copy. And I knew that the minute that call came, emotionally we would be so overwhelmed that you can't think. You know, when a crisis happens, sometimes you can't think yep. straight. That all we would need to do is look at that piece of paper and follow instruction number one, phone Gabby, instruction number two, literally, literally, second by second I documented and that's what happened, because when the call came, I wasn't there. And Stu, the first thing he did was phone me and said, we've got lungs, which were the most outrageous words in the world to hear. And then he said, I have to go now, and I'm going to start on number one. And he put the phone down, and I had to get Christy and I to Joburg from Plet, and he had to get Jen, the nurse, himself, all the medication all of which was 80% packed already, up to Joburg. And then he followed that instruction list, one by one by one. But what happened was that the jet that was supposed to be on the ground to get us to Joburg was not even in South Africa at the time. So that was outrageous. Um, But again, friends, Jonathan Ackerman was a good friend. and He's He's a good friend of mine. Oh, He just started phoning. (sighs) Who's got a jet on the ground? I just... And then there were these two guys who were the pilots who were about to get into the water on their surf ski who got a phone call to say, can you take a young kid to, the, to Joburg for a transplant? And they just, they literally got to the plane in their shorts and T-shirts 20 minutes later. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. It really is. That day was hectic. You wrote a list and a manual for in case you got lungs, but you didn't write one in case there was a passing? No. I didn't. I never thought there would be. Did you know that day? No. I, um... I always thought she would make it. So did I. And I'm really sorry. So did she. It only really started to dawn on me about two weeks before she died that, um... It wasn't going to be. And even then, I clung to the hope. And she'd fought so hard, you know, for so long. That, um, I mean, for months, the doctors just couldn't believe she was still alive. She came back from so many things that went wrong. And such a tiny little body, but just the, it was the sheer willpower, you know. Um... Although she did say to me, and I think I do say it in the book, that one of the hardest things 
and it's why I'm still so passionate about organ donation. Those people waiting, waiting. It's such a hard thing to do, to be waiting like that. Because you don't know, and this is her words. One of the hardest things, mum, is I don't know if I'm preparing to live or I'm preparing to die. So when you wonder whether you should be an organ donor or not, you don't need your organs when you're dead. You don't need them. But somebody's waiting to live. Somebody's waiting to live. The end of the book becomes a journal where you start documenting it day by day. Everything that you are going through and the family. At some stage you mention how she's even scared to breathe because she has never experienced that kind of um, sensation, call it that, because she hasn't breathed without the oxygen mask or the oxygen in her nose for, for almost two years. Yeah. Did you ever find out who the donor was? No. So in South Africa, um, legally you're not allowed to know who the donor is. So um, you don't. You never know. Do you think she would have lived longer if you didn't give her lungs? I know she wouldn't have. Because when they did the transplant, um, they autopsied her, lung, her lungs. And she had probably two months to live, if that. So um, I know that she wouldn't have. Yeah. There's so many themes of of hope, and even through the acknowledgements, I read your book and I'm thinking, you have so many people that love you. <laughs> and that I love. You have so many people that can actually give a hoot you know, like you, know. if someone has to pick up this book, because at the airport, just so you know, in Cape Town, it's in the center. Good. <laughs> and all the other books are around it. If someone had to pick up Get Me to 21 and they want to read a mother's epic battle to save her daughter's life, what do you want them to know when they buy it and when they start reading I think they need to know that, yes, they're going to cry and they're going to weep, but they're also going to laugh and they're going to be inspired. And when they put that book down, it might take them a couple of days to recover, but their lives will never be the same again and they will never take one single second for granted. They won't. And that is so important because we have today. We have today. And every minute that we happen, have matters. It matters. We don't know what tomorrow holds. And you can either stress yourself about that and panic about it, or you can just say, I have today. And what am I going to do with it? What do I want to do with it? And get to the end of the day and ask yourself, what am I grateful for? And what do I want to do differently tomorrow? Every day. I do that every night. What am I grateful for? And what am I going to do differently tomorrow? How old is Jen in 2021? 24. And Christy's 21. I looked at the oh, numbers. Oh, 2021, not this year. <laughs> no. Okay, then she would be 26. Six. Yeah. 26. I looked at the numbers and it just th made me think when she started the campaign, get me to 21, what if she yeah. meant... 2021. <laughs> what if she... Yeah, she would have been 26 then. So she died three months before her 21st birthday. Mm. Um, yeah, which meant that for Christy, when she turned 21, which was at the end of last year, well, August last year, um, that was a very tough birthday for mm. all of us. Already 21 is a milestone, but that was <laughs> a big milestone. But I think in some ways, now that it is, now that she is 21, that it's her turn to, I don't know how to put this, but to, she's no longer walking in the steps behind her sister. Mm -hmm. She's now older than her sister. 
and everything she does every day. Even that concept is weird, isn't it, that you're older mm-hmm. than your sister? Yeah. Um, but everything that she does every day, she now does from her heart. As rewarding and also as difficult as it is, if you could turn back time, would you have children? Oh, yes. <laughs> Of course. Thank God you said yes. Of course. Good heavens. No, gosh, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And Jane was a gift, you know. Even even with everything I've been through, I'm blessed. I am blessed. You've been through a lot. Yeah. What do you do now? Tell me about your career. Tell me about you're an author now. And you are. <laughs> wow. That's, that's the first time someone said that out loud. It's true. It's weird. You are an that author. Thanks to Jane, you're an author. Wow. Yeah. Okay. She kind of pushed you in that direction. Yeah, she did. But I'm also a life coach. Mm. So after, Gi- after Jane died, um, going back to marketing and PR just didn't seem right to me. I don't know. Um, things had changed so much. And um, I had always wanted to go into life coaching, weirdly enough. And um, it just felt like the right time. So I did an, a, a course with a with a company in Cape Town, very good company called The Coaching Center, mm-hmm. an 18-month course that's internationally recognized and is ICF accredited. And it was tough because I was going through so much and it was so early in my grief. But it was also amazing because it really takes you on a deep internal journey. And that helped me enormously. And then I started my practice. So two years after she died, I started my practice called The Coaching Nest. And... Um, Chose the name very carefully. There's mm-hmm. a beautiful story in the book about how that came about. And um, I just love what I do. I absolutely love it. Sometimes I have up to eight clients in a day. Stu says to me, you must be exhausted. I'm like, you don't, you don't understand. Yeah. I am so motivated. It, um, yeah, I absolutely love what I do. But now the book as well. And I also, of course, run the Genelo Trust, um, which is an NPO. And we have a clinic at Kroeskia. Wow. And um, a registry that we started for PH patients. And we're holding an international pulmonary hypertension meeting next year. And then I have a second business, coaching business, with another coach called Pippa Shaper. And we've co-authored a model on emotional resilience, authentic emotional resilience. Wow. And we teach workshops on authentic emotional resilience. And that work, I think, is going to take off. She's also had inordinate loss in her life. And so they are tools that really, really make a difference in people's mm-hmm. lives. In life, what would you say is the biggest lesson for you? The biggest lesson? Live with an open heart. Because if you live with an open heart... You will see others. You won't turn away from their pain. You will you'll feel. That means you'll feel pain, but you'll feel joy. You'll be aware of what's going on around you. You won't shut down. You won't live in denial. You won't have a small life if you live with an open heart. You'll believe. You'll trust. You'll have faith in humanity. I think all of us have a lot of work to do with self after reading this book. Because it's not just about how other people make you feel, but how you make them feel, right? Absolutely, and how you make yourself feel. Are you present to yourself? Mm. Do you listen? Really listen. Get me to 21. The Jenna Lowe story. Gabby is her mom. It's like I want to say it's your house, Jen. <laughs> I think she's right here with us and she's smiling down on you and on us. Hashtag get me to 21. I hope you sell many copies. Thank you. Author, Gabby Lowe. <laughs> Love the pictures. Oh. I yes. recognize most of the people. I know Ali. You're joking. Yeah, I work with oh. her. Ask, ask Alison. I'm the best MC. <laughs> of course you are. Of course you are. Rainbow experimental marketing. I'm the... Ali is cool. She is She's super rad. cool. And She's her husband too. Cool. They're superstars. They're like musicians. And so I can't believe we've never met. It's just I ridiculous. know, but that's why I was like, yeah, wow. Because you, you know Suzanne and you know Jonathan yes. and you know Alison and 
<laughs> it was just like, how okay, come so I next time you come down, we're going to have a little party. <laughs> I should have bumped into you at some Shabbat at some stage. Yes, absolutely. No, it's just... There's beautiful pictures of the girls in here. Oh, I can't stop talking to you. You're an extraordinary woman. Do you know that? Thank you. And there's a reason why you're here in this building today. And there's a reason why thousands of women, by the way, we are number one in South Africa, but our most listeners are in Israel. Oh, you're joking. So, Shalom Chavara, get me to 21. That's a book that you want to look for. Gabby Lowe is the author. If you are in Israel, you can actually order it online. Give us the address. Where? www.jennalow.org and the low is spelled L-O-W-E and we ship it everywhere in the world and then if you buy it online through the Jenna Lowe Trust 10% goes to the trust for the work we do yes Baby Brunch is made just for you by Bright Rock Becoming a parent changes everything from your sleep schedule to your finances that's why Bright Rock's Needs Match Life Insurance lets you precisely craft a solution to cover your specific needs from protecting your income to covering your debts and your child's future. Because you pay just for the cover you need, you can get up to 40% more cover. So get the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Go to brightrock.co.za. Brightrock Life is an authorized financial services provider and registered insurer. Terms and conditions apply.